I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the History of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon, and this is episode 16, The Golden Age of Vladimir. Thanks for listening in. Last time, we covered what was effectively a civil war between the different Rus' sub-princedoms that saw the balance of power shifting northwards and eastwards from Kiev up to Vladimir and Novgorod. And we briefly covered the lives and times of Yuri Dolgoruki and his son Andrei Bogoryubsky, the first two Grand Princes of Vladimir. I also did a short piece on Novgorod, and then I finished off waffling on about bird cages and perches. This week we're going to look at the princedom and city of Vladimir at the turn of the 13th century, but I'll be sandwiching this between two other subjects. First off the Cumans, and then finishing off talking to you all about a young lad called Temujin. So, it's three for the price of one, and the rationale for this is that there's a massive event coming up, I mean really massive, that I'll need to do research for and cover in some detail. And so I want to do a bit of tidying up here before we get there. Because on the one hand, the sources and chronicles have been pretty clear in stating that one of the main reasons for the Kievan decline was the Cumans and their incessant raiding. And yet on the other hand, they've hardly been mentioned over the past couple of episodes, and so I want to find out if they were indeed a factor, or was the recent spate of troubles in reality just down to the reduction in Byzantine trade and the continual infighting amongst the Rus' princes. And now that Kievan Rus is finished, I want to take a quick look at the new capital, Vladimir. What was going on there, and who some of the main characters were? Well, to be honest, it's more a case of one character, the superbly named Vesevolod III Bignest. And then there's Temujin. Well, 
more of him later. Just a couple of quick things before we get going. I was in a bookshop the other day, still, I think, one of life's great pleasures. And I managed to get my hands on a superb book on Russian history, simply called Russia and the Russians. It's by a guy called Geoffrey Hoskin. It comes in at just over 600 pages and yet manages to be succinct and enjoyable. And I can't recommend it highly enough. Then, as usual, there have been a few more people who have followed the podcast. And this week, I'd like to thank... Well, the first one is PPG followed by a load of letters and numbers. And then we've got Martin Moll or Muell, uh, Electro, Electrico123, Armando89, and Gomsk for listening in. Thanks, guys. As ever, it's really, really appreciated. So that's it. No other announcements or admin or marketing this week. Let's get on with it. So from the word go, it seems like the Rus have always had to live with a troublesome neighbour to their east. First we had the Khazars, then there were the Drevlians, then the Pechenegs, and most recently, the Cumans. So the Khazars and the Drevlians were both dealt with in the 900s, and then the Pechenegs were eventually stymied by a series of defensive forts built by Yaroslav the Wise in the 1030s and were never a threat to the Rus again, and disappeared from our story. Interestingly enough though, the Pechenegs hung around for a further 60 odd years before they met their final end at the Battle of Levunian in 1091, where they were defeated by a combined force of Byzantines led by the Emperor Alexios Komnenos and, interestingly enough, the Cumans. The Rus had first encountered the Cumans, who were also called the Polovsti, or the Kipchaks, back in the 1050s, during the time of the Triumvirate, and had suffered a major defeat to them in 1068, which, if you recall, led to the people of Kiev rising up and replacing Isaiaslav with Veseslav of Polotsk. So obviously Yaroslav's forts were either poorly, poorly garrisoned by this stage, or had fallen into a state of disrepair. After this initial foray, the Cumans repeatedly invaded eastern Kievan Rus territory, mainly Chernigov and Pereyaslav, devastating the land and taking captives who became either their slaves or were sold at markets either in Constantinople or in the south of the Rus lands. In 1093 at the Battle of the Stugna River, they defeated the Rus again, and in 1096, the Cumans attacked Kiev, burned down the princely palace at Berestova, and plundered the Kievan cave monastery. In 1109, Vladimir Monomarch launched a massive raid against them, and is said to have captured 1,000 tents. And further Rus raids followed in 1111, 1113, and 1116. And it seemed that the tide had turned as the Cumans turned their attention to the Poles in the west and the Byzantines to the south. But by 1125 they had returned to the steppe, along the Rus borders, and small-scale skirmishing and raiding resumed in 1128. In 1155, and I'll just pause here to say sorry about the amount of dates I'm throwing at you, we saw the Cumans assisting Yuri Dolgoruki during his march on Kiev. But by 1160, 
they were again raiding the Rus lands, and these raids became an almost annual event and did affect trade along the routes to the Black Sea and onwards to Constantinople. So the Cumans and the Rus had a confusing, complex relationship, but I'm not totally convinced that the Cumans were a major cause of the decline of Kiev. They simply took advantage of a weakened state that was racked by internecine strife, weak leadership, and which was trying to adjust to Byzantine decline and the knock-on effect that that had to commerce and trade. If, and it's a big if, the Rus had remained a strong, centralised entity, I'm pretty sure that they would have eventually dealt with the Cumans in much the same way as they had dealt with the Khazars and the Pechenegs. But due to the reasons I've outlined, they were more interested in fighting each other. Plus, I think they realised that whilst the Cumans were a serious pain in the backside, they were never going to be strong enough to land a knockout blow and take the Rus lands. And I suppose another way to look at it is, if the Cumans hadn't been around, would Kiev have remained as the preeminent power in the Rus lands? And I would suggest that the answer to that question would be a resounding niet. So, the situation in the 1170s is that whilst Kiev is finished, the Rus centred in Vladimir and to a lesser extent in Novgorod are going to carry on wearily tolerating the Cumans winning a few, losing a few, until such a time that they are perhaps in a position to deal with them permanently. Anyway, we briefly touched on Novgorod in the last episode, but Vladimir barely got a mention, so let's put that right and take a look at what kind of place it was. So present-day Vladimir is a city and the administrative centre of Vladimir Oblast in Russia. It's located on the Klyazma River and it's about 200 kilometres or about 120 miles to the east of Moscow. At the time of the Rus, the city was in the princedom of Rostov-Sustal, which then, as we know, became the princedom of Vladimir. And by the way, an oblast is a political division in Russia and roughly translates as either zone, province or region. Vladimir was one of the medieval capitals of Russia, with significant buildings surviving from the 12th century. Two of its Russian Orthodox cathedrals, a monastery and associated buildings, the so-called White Monuments of Vladimir and Suzdal, have all been designated as UNESCO World Heritage Sites. And in the past, the city was known as Vladimir on Kliasma to distinguish it from another city called Vladimir which is in Volnia in modern Ukraine. Traditionally, the founding date for the city has been acknowledged as 1108, as the first mention of Vladimir in the primary chronicle appears under that year, and this source attributes the founding of the city and its name to Vladimir Monomarch, who inherited the region as part of the rostov suzdal Principality in 1093. However, and isn't there always a however, in the 1990s, a new opinion surfaced that suggested the city was founded much earlier. And this seems to be based on an alternative source, which mentions that the region was visited by Vladimir the Great, the father of Russian Orthodoxy, at some point between 990 and 995. Well, all of this caused a bit of a storm, because the defenders of the previously uncontested founding year of 1108 
disputed the claims of those who supported the new date, arguing that the new theory was fabricated in order to provide a reason to have a big celebration in the 1990s. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The 12th century inhabitants of Susdal alluded to Vladimir as a young town and treated its rulers with arrogance. In the words of a major chronicle, they said that the people of Vladimir were their holops and scions, and in the Rus civil wars of the 12th century, Vladimir was repeatedly described as a young town compared to Suzdal and Rostov. So to me, 1108 sounds a more realistic date, but nevertheless, you see, I'm trying to find ways of not saying however, the Charter of Vladimir, the basic law of the city, passed in 2005, explicitly mentions 990 as the date of the city's foundation. Anyway, whenever it was founded, the city's most historically significant events occurred after the turn of the 12th century. Originally set up as a defensive outpost for the Rostov-Suzdal Principality, Vladimir had little political or military influence throughout the reigns of Vladimir Monomark and his son Yuri Dolgoruki. Under Dolgoruki's son, Andrei Bogolyubsky, the city became the centre of the Vladimir Suzdal Principality and experienced its own golden age, spanning the late 1100s and the early 1200s. Now take a note of that because we all know what happens after a golden age. After the death of André on the 29th of June, 1174, there was a squabble over the succession between Michalko, André's half-brother, and Yaropolk, André's nephew. Now this lasted a couple of years, but by June 1176, both men were dead, and the throne was inherited by the man I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, another son of Dolgoruki, Vesevolod III Big Nest, or in Slavic, Borshoya Gnezdo. So let's get the name out of the way before we carry on any further. He's called Big Nest because he had 14 children. It's as simple as that. But I find that strange because in a time when the various princes had very large families by modern standards, 14 children doesn't seem to be neither here nor there. Particularly when you look at the fact that his father, Yuri, also had 14 children. As mentioned, Vsevolod was the son of Yuri Dolgoruki by his second wife, a Byzantine princess named Helen. And indeed, he spent some of his youth at the royal court of the Komennoi 
in Constantinople. On his return from the Byzantine Empire to the Ruslands in 1170, Vesevolod supposedly visited Tbilisi in Georgia, as a local chronicle records that in that year the Georgian king entertained his nephew from Constantinople and married him to one of his relatives, an Ossetian princess. Just like you do, I suppose. In 1173, two Smolensk princes captured Kiev, captured Vesevolod, and briefly installed him on the throne. But Vesevolod's luck took a turn for the better, and he was ransomed a year later, presumably by his brother Mikhalko, because he fought by his side in the struggle against the powerful boyars of Rostov and Sustov. And then upon Mikhalko's death in 1176, Vesevolod succeeded him in Vladimir, and he promptly went about subjugating the boyars and systematically raided the Volga peoples, notably the Volga Bulgarians. He installed puppet rulers on the throne of Novgorod and married his daughters to princes of Chernigov and Kiev. He showed little mercy to those who disobeyed his commands and in 1180 and 1187 he punished the nobles of Ryazan by ousting them from their lands and then in 1207 he burnt both Ryazan and Belgorod to the ground. And this reputation for not taking things lightly spread quickly. In a literary piece called The Tale of Igor's Campaign, and this Igor was a prince of Chernigov who lived in the second part of the 12th century and who fought against the Cumans. Uh, this piece of literature was thought to have been written during Vesevolod's reign and it addresses him in this way. And now it's time for my quotations voice. Great Prince Vesevolod, don't you think of flying here from afar to safeguard the paternal golden throne of Kiev? For you can, with your oars, scatter in drops the Volga, and with your helmets scoop dry the Don. Now, I'm not really sure what any of that means, but I think it's praising Vesevolod. And there was mention of Kiev there, but Kiev mattered little to him in the latter part of his reign, and he concentrated on building up his own capital, Vladimir, and his Ossetian wife, Maria Shvanovna, who devoted herself to works of piety and founded several convents, and who was later glorified by the Russian church as a saint. Bigness died in 1212, after a reign of nearly 36 years, and four of his massive brood, his sons Konstantin, Yuri, Yaroslav and Sviatoslav would go on to succeed him as Grand Dukes of Vladimir. So, it looks like things are going well, and it looks like the Vladimirian Golden Age is set to continue for a long time yet. Anyway, whilst you contemplate that, I'd like to take you about 3,000 miles to the east, to Mongolia, and back to the early 1160s, when Vesevolod himself was a young lad, and the Rus infighting was at its zenith. At some point in either the late 1150s, or more probably the early 1160s, a boy called Temujin was born into a family of Mongolian nomads at a place called Delun Boldog, near present-day Ulaanbaatar. Like many nomads, life for Temujin's family was hard and tough. There were three other brothers, one sister, and two half-brothers to feed. And so at the age of nine, his father arranged a marriage with him, 
delivered him to the family of his future wife uh, of the uh, Congered tribe. And there Temujin was to live and serve the head of the household, household until he reached marriageable age. But whilst heading home, his father ran into the neighbouring Tartars, who had long been enemies of the Mongols, and they offered him food that was poisoned, and he ate it. Upon learning of his father's death, Temujin returned home to try and claim his father's position as chief, but the tribe refused to have anything to do with this, and they abandoned him and his family, effectively leaving them on their own and without any realistic protection. So for the next few years, the family lived in poverty, surviving mainly on scraps, which was mare's milk that they would steal, wild fruit that they would pick, and any game that they could trap or kill. During this time, Temujin's older half-brother, Begta, began to exercise his power as the eldest male in the family. And this would eventually mean that he would have the right to claim Hölun, who was Temujin's mother, as his wife. And Temujin just couldn't come to terms with this situation. And during a hunting excursion, his resentment erupted and he and his younger brother killed Begta. Then in 1177, Temujin was captured by his father's former allies and enslaved, reportedly with a, I don't know how to pronounce this, I think it's either called a kangu or a kank. And it's a kind of portable stocks with, made out of wood with holes for, holes for the head and the hands. But with the help of a sympathetic guard, he escaped from his tent. Or, in an alternative version of events, he smashed the guard over the head with a heavy implement. Anyhow, he escaped, spent the next night hiding below the banks of a river. And then, over the next few years, he collected together a band of tough young men and slowly started to exert his influence among the local tribes, forming alliances, raiding and stealing livestock, and taking revenge on those tribes and individuals who had slighted him and his family. Okay, time to hit the pause button for now. When we hit play again, we'll be taking a look at the further adventures of Temujin, covering who he becomes, and I'm sure you probably guessed who that is, and what he does, and more importantly for the Rus, what his descendants are about to do. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed listening. If you want to get in touch, uh, you can via the website historyofrussia.podbean.com or I'm on Twitter at historyrussia1 or this good old email nordicworld.outlook.com So, until next time, stay safe, look after yourselves and I'll see you all soon. <laughs>